Hi, everyone. It's Mary Strawn here, host of the Kids Who Color Outside the Lines interview series. And I'm really excited today to have my guest, uh, Rona Renner, who is also known as Nurse Rona. Um, when I when I found her and I, you know, called her up and we had a chat, um, it was really clear that she is just a wealth of knowledge um, about kids and parenting and families. But what really um, caught my attention is the work that she does around um, temperament. And I'm going to let her talk, tell you all about that, but that's the topic for today. Um, and also, just to let you know, she has a really great book. Um, it's called, Is That Me Yelling? And I think we can probably all relate to that at some point in another um, in our parenting lives, uh, realizing that we're perhaps just yelling a little bit more than we need to. So um, she's going to tell us a little bit about that in, in the context of temperament. Um, but everyone, welcome. Uh, nurse. I'm going to call you Nurse Rona. Is that okay? That's great. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. It's a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you and to talk to the listeners. And as I said to you, I could talk about temperament for hours. I, I was very fortunate to be trained by Kaiser Permanente. It's an HMO here in the United States. And they trained me back in 1991, and I became a temperament counselor. And my career as a nurse really shifted, and I started working in groups, in classes, one-on-one -on -one with parents, trying to really help them understand who their particular child is. And I was very fortunate. I, I was trained by some of the real pioneers in temperament, uh, Dr. Stella Chess and Alexander Thomas and uh, Jim Cameron. And, and I, it was like a light bulb went off. Here was a piece of the puzzle that I had never understood. I have four children, and and yes. I started learning about temperament when my last child was was young. And you know, it's not something that was talked a lot about. I, I would imagine in your training, in your experience, you probably didn't hear much about temperament. No, no, and yeah. that's part of the reason that I wanted you to come on to introduce this this concept to us and make it real for us, um, where shall we start? I think we need to start by telling people what do you mean by temperament. Right, and I'll do that for sure because, um, you know, it, temperament is one piece of the puzzle when you look at who a child is. And again, I okay. do a lot of trainings for teachers as well as parents and professionals. But it's one piece of the puzzle. You know, there's parenting style and, and how parents were raised, their culture, um, you know, their um, a, a child's age and development, the events in their life, heredity. So there are all these factors. And, and so for, for this talk, I'm going to really put a focus on the, the temperament piece. And, and temperament is a person's first and most natural way of responding to the world. It's, it's the way they tend to be and move in the world, just as some babies are born with a lot of hair and others with little or no hair. Some babies you'll see in the nursery. I used to work in uh, postpartum uh, and uh, labor and delivery, and I would see babies 
right away with their little clenched fists and they'd be crying all the time in the nursery. And then there'd be other babies who were just like laid back and chill. And so sometimes you can see it very early on. And I've had parents tell me that they knew when the baby was in utero that this mm-hmm. was going to be a highly active child. Um, so right. so we come we come into the world already with a style, so to speak. And, you know, most professionals think that it's there's a very large biological component to temperament. And the question always comes up with a child's behavior when we're trying to understand the behavior. Is this nature yes. or nurture? You know, mm-hmm. did this child come into the world this way or was this child taught how to be so intense because the parents were so intense? And, you know, there are some things you just can't separate out and there's really no need to. But for people to understand, and anyone who has more than one child can see this, that children are really different and that difference starts early. And for us to really be, I think, effective parents and connected parents and teachers, we need to step back and think about what is the child's temperament, what are the child's temperament traits, and how that affects their behavior, and then what are our basic temperament traits, and mm-hmm. how that fit together works so that um, we set up an environment that's really best for for a child. And and Chess and Thomas, I just want to say something about them. They were just these wonderful psychiatrists who um, did a New York longitudinal study, and it started back in the late 50s. And when they did this study, they noticed that there were parents who were really good, easygoing, cool parents who had really challenging kids. And then there were some parents who were like, eh, not all that terrific, they thought, and had really easy kids. So there was this aha for them that said, wait a second, there's something else going on. It's not that everything that a child is is because of what the parents do. Um, it, a lot of this is inborn. Okay. That makes sense, that makes sense too, doesn't it, Mary? It does make sense. Um, but I do want to clarify, um, because we hear, um, per, uh, you know, we can talk about personality. Is it is temperament different than personality? It is. It's more of the how they move in the world. Um, And, again, how sensitive, how adaptable, how intense, how active. Um, And then personality is something else that's kind of the the icing on the cake on top of that. Okay. So this is some underlying. And and what uh, Chess and Thomas found in their study, which was really interesting, um, they found that about um, 10% of kids after they analyzed the data, you know, 10, 15 years later, fell into the category that they called difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, people have since then called these kids spirited. Uh, Mary mm-hmm. Kosinka, who's a wonderful temperament person who wrote the book Raising Your Spirited Child, you know, she shifted away from the, the label of difficult. But there were about 10% who seemed to be particularly challenging, and there are about 40% who they called easy kids who kind of went with the flow and adapted yeah. easily and weren't overly intense. And um, and then there was a group that they called um, slow to warm up. About 15% of the children were what often people call shy. Yeah. And, 
And this is the child who is, again, slow to warm up, and when they're comfortable, they will join in like other children as well. And then there was a remaining like 35% who didn't fall into any of these categories. So that's just to give you an overview that that um, most kids are easygoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parents who come to see me, the, the parents of the children who struggle sometimes in school are the kids who sort of fall outside of that easy um, temperament and are kids who really need a lot of understanding to help them um, adapt well to situations. And and these are often kids who are highly sensitive, um, have trouble shifting from one thing to another, are children who are maybe are a little more shy than others, or very impulsive or intense, and um, have trouble following those rules in school. So... Um, you know, what I can do, if, unless you have any other questions right now, I can go over what those traits are, and then um, we can talk more about how that impacts both parenting and education. Absolutely. Let's, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Okay, let me get my little yeah. list here. Um, and in my book, I, I just want to mention, Is That Me Yelling? It's a book a, a lot about mindfulness, but it's also about temperament, which is really helping parents look at what their triggers are for when their mm-hmm. child is doing something that causes them to react and to yell. And, you know, there's a, a, a really good chapter on temperament because a lot of the triggers to our reactivity as a parent or a teacher has to do with, mm-hmm. again, that fit. Maybe I'm very much like my child, and so we escalate in our intensity. Or mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'm so highly sensitive, and my child is so enthusiastic and loud that just his voice triggers me because of my mm-hmm. sensitivity. So I just want to say that there's a good chapter there where a parent could identify their child's temperament and their temperament to help them understand more. Because my philosophy is that parents are experts on their kids more than any of us. You know, you have some wonderful experts on this series, and I so appreciate how much I learn from many of them. But really, the parent is the expert, and, and when they understand that their role is to keep becoming more aware of who their individual child is, things go better at home. And in relationship, like yes. you just said, in relationship to them as well. Yes, absolutely. To the parents, yeah. Right. And and I know with my four children, they were all different. But I definitely um, learned over time, you know, what they needed in terms of both discipline and approach. And a lot of things I missed um, because I didn't understand what they needed as well. Right. So... Let me start. So these nine traits were identified um, by many people, and Dr. Chesson Thomas or some of the key people involved in that. Um, there were other people as well. And other, um, there are other models of temperament, but these are, this is a good basic nine traits. So the first one okay. is sensitivity. And, um, you know, when I think about kids who are um, color outside the lines, you know, there are a lot of wonderful, sensitive children in the world who take in everything. They they yeah. seem to not have the same filter, and I'm sure you work with a lot of parents who have kids who are high in sensitivity. Yes. Yeah. And, 
And one thing about temperament is it's this wide range of normal. And okay. so what I'm talking about today is not the child with a sensory integration disorder, okay. you know, who who might have more impairment in terms of how their high sensitivity impacts them. I'm really looking at this wide range of normal, and there are some kids who are high in sensitivity. They're sensitive perhaps to temperature, light, how foods taste, um, textures, you know, the, the labels in their clothes, um, the ridges in their socks. They may be sensitive to um, intrusions. There are many different things they may be sensitive to. And those children who are high in sensitivity sometimes get identified, I've noticed, as having an attention deficit disorder or they get um, they get identified as kids who have meltdowns and tantrums for no reason, whereas mm-hmm. the, the parent or the teacher might not understand that if a label is bothering them in the back of their shirt, well, the sound of, of the chaos in the classroom might also be really affecting their system. And and so those high sensitivity kids, I think, are at particular risk for not being understood. Okay. And I also think they're often very brilliant because they're so yes. perceptive. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yes. And and I I have a lot of parents who come to talk to me because they're struggling with a child who is high in sensitivity. Um, the low sensitivity child, kind of things just roll off their back. And they okay. might even, you know, as a baby, they might not even realize they need their diaper changed. They might be the kid who doesn't put their jacket on going to school because they're not cold. They're not right. sensitive to the environment. Um, they're not sensitive sometimes to cues, you know, from other people. So they might get into a person's space not realizing it. Or they might not realize that their friend is mad at them because they haven't really picked up on those cues. So there's the high sensitivity, the low sensitivity, and then there are a lot of children who are right in the middle. Any questions on that, Mary? Well, well, no, not a question, but I I just had never even thought about it in terms of that, you know, of the low sensitivity. I just always, yes. I always think of the highly sensitive ones. Uh, yes. But, but thanks for pointing that out, that... that um, there can be this low sensitivity as well. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes those kids even have trouble with toileting. Like they don't even notice they have to go to the bathroom. You know, they're not right. as attuned to mm-hmm. often their body or to um, things that are going on outside of them. It, it's, it's um, you know, they go with the flow, but also sometimes it's a, all of these traits have like positives and and challenges. Yeah. There's no good sure. or bad. Um, but knowing that about your child is really helpful to realize that they may not be very reactive. And, and if you have a low sensitivity child, you know, they could be hurt and you might not even realize it because they're not intense and crying and carrying on. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, it's becoming sensitive to who that child is. Um, the next one is activity, and it's pretty clear when you have a high-energy child in your classroom yes. or at home. Uh, <laughs> they, they're they just on the go, and they love to be a little Energizer Bunny, and they have lots of uh, desire, I think, for those gross motor activities. And it's very hard to put a high-energy child into a classroom where so much of the time is spent sitting 
and doing mm-hmm. worksheets. And I think I've done a lot of school observations, and that's often where um, there's such a poor fit between a high-energy child and the school environment. Yes. And, you know, again, we're not talking about the um, outside of the wide range of normal, but that's a whole other discussion about when does a high-energy child suddenly look like a child who's hyperactive. Right. And, um, you know, I got asked that a lot when I was working, um, doing temperament work at Kaiser and uh, this whole gray area. And I would, the main thing I want to say there is the word impairment. And okay. you want to make sure a high energy child's in the right environment where they can really thrive with their energy and learn also to manage it and control it when they need to. <laughs> But if if there's impairment, if they can't function well, you want to look at the environment, but then you also want to look at the possible neurobiological pieces that might be going on. Um, And then there are low-activity kids who tend not to be the real class leader. Um, They tend to be happy with low activities that are going on, and um, often they can play by themselves as well. And parents don't usually complain so much about the child who's low no. in activity. <laughs> you <Nope>. notice that? <laughs> right. Yes. It, it, it's the high-energy kids who wear us out a lot, um, especially when you're an older parent. So um, the next one is intensity. And I, I, I love this one. It's it's the child, the high-intensity child has that joie de vie, that love of life, um, they feel things strongly. Mm. They they go from zero to 60. You know, I love you, I hate you. Um, mm-hmm. They love to be the center of attention. They like to um, sometimes be the class clown. They are so passionate about what they do. And that's where they're, they're, it's so beautiful, where they can really get involved in things and be passionate and save the world. Um, and at the same time, Kids with this high intensity um, can really have those big tantrums and can really, um, you know, spend a lot of time telling how unfair things are and um, can escalate. They like they like things to be exciting and stimulating. So if things are not exciting and stimulating, they will make them exciting and stimulating in a positive or a negative way. Right. Um, and um uh, they're just they're just so present you you don't you know if you're sitting at a table with a lot of people, the high intensity person is real obvious usually um mm-hmm. and and they they like to be seen they make great leaders and actors and um and for parents, I think having a child and for teachers who are high intensity that's a big trigger some of the time. Because that intensity, like, how come you said that? And, you know, having that right. little outburst can really trigger the adults in their lives. Yes. And and the low-intensity child, or the child with low intensity, I should say, um, you know, they may let things roll off their back and not have strong reactions, but the mistake we make as parents and teachers sometimes is we might ignore them. Mm. And the child with lower intensity has strong feelings, observes things, needs attention, needs connection, but can easily be missed, especially if they have a brother or sister who's high intensity in the household or in the classroom. The the low-intensity child might 
you know, not be seen as well. Mm-hmm. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Yes, and I think also I'm already starting to see the connection between if you have a parent who's number one on the, you know, uh, the sensitivity level is high, and then you have the, you know... Um, intense child. <laughs> intense child. You can see how that quickly becomes uh, obvious, the trigger there. That's right. So That's you're right. doing a great and job of, of painting this picture. And in classrooms, you know, you might have a teacher who's very orderly and very calm and likes things a certain way, and if they have a few high-intensity sensitive, high-activity kids, it mm-hmm. sometimes just throws things off. And, right. um, you know, a teacher who's very talented or um, they're not too burnt out or, you know, they have a lot of experience really knows how to set up a classroom so that they use that child who has the high-intensity to be a leader and to, um, you know, be able to be creative. You want to channel that energy. The key thing yes. with high-intensity and high-energy kids is to really channel that energy into things that are creative or helpful. Um, you know, I, I find kids who have high-intensity, they like helping young children. Um, yes. they're, they're just happy to be of use um, right. to others. Yeah. So the next one okay. is adaptab- next one is adaptability. And just, you know, again, a broad picture of this is some kids are very fast adapting to uh, changes. They can go and have, you know, transitions, easy transitions. They can change from one thing to another. They don't mind intrusions. So you suddenly tell them, oh, today we're not going to the park as planned. We have to go here. You know, they go, okay, fine. They can adapt with that. They can get into their car seats. They can um, adapt after school and start doing the homework they need to do. Kids who are slower adapting really need time to make those changes, make the transitions, and they do so well with timers. They do so well with charts. You know, if the teacher has a real clear schedule about what's to be expected for the day, and then that child who's a little slow to transition gets an extra tap on the shoulder, you know, um, Maria, we are going to be stopping in about five minutes any kind of warning, because they seem to be natural planners, kids who are a little slow in adapting. They have a picture of how things should be. And when things don't go along with that picture, then they struggle. And I find a lot of parents are rushing a whole lot in the morning, trying to get out to work, get the kids ready, find the shoes that are under the bed. And the child who's a natural planner and a little slow adapting, again, may dawdle. And Mm -hmm. that's where parents get really frustrated and wind up yelling a lot if there's not enough time to understand what that child needs. Mm -hmm. Have you you worked with parents who have kids who are a little slow adapting? Well, I have. Uh, I have a little girl who I think, you know, my son just said, how is it possible that, you know, she gets up way earlier than me and is still, you know, rushing to get the bus? Right. That's right. And that's where stepping back and thinking about the structure of the morning really helps parents. You know, how do I get them to, for instance, be dressed, 
and get everything ready, get a bunch of things ready the night before so mm-hmm. there's less struggle. I tell parents that even though they're sleep deprived, they need to wake up 15 minutes earlier so they could take their shower or have their coffee and then have the child all ready and then when there's time to be able to keep playing or reading their book if, if everything's set. Put the shoes by the front door. Put the backpack by the front door. You know, anything that can reduce um, sort of the adaptability that's needed. And again, have very clear structure of how things go in the morning because the child who's slow adapting, you know, can do well knowing what to expect. Um, the next trait is mood, and I, I kind of ignore that one pretty much. Um, the way that Chess and Thomas had the scale is that, you know, some kids are more naturally happy and um, in a positive mood. Uh, just by nature, but just by temperament, not because of any trauma, not because of anything that's happened. And other kids are just more serious. Okay. And, and, you know, if you have a child, a baby who's more serious, what happens sometimes is we don't always engage in the same way. So mm-hmm. it's important to notice their temperament but still stay connected and engage with that child who's more serious okay. and accept them for who they are. Um, okay, so the next one is approach withdrawal. So that's the introvert and the extrovert. Okay. And some kids are very extroverted. They'll, you know, go to the store with you, and the next thing you know, they're talking to everyone online, and um, they're just very happy to go to new places, new things, new people. And there are other kids who are cautious and slow to warm up. And in our culture, I think we have to continue to really accept that it's important yeah. to have the slow-to-warm-up person, the introvert. Uh, they're, uh-huh. they're a very significant part of our culture, and they are very observant. And um, I, I think it's really um, challenging when I see parents who are trying to make an introvert into an extrovert. You know, there are ways to help an introvert feel comfortable, and that's the key word in school or at home. If there's someone who's slow to warm up, just allow them to be and gently encourage them, but really make them feel comfortable. If you put a child on the spot, you know, um, Jose, you must get up and read in front of the class now, you know, that's going to cause more withdrawal. But if you pair him up with someone else, and they do the project together, um, Jose will get more comfortable over time. Right. And so um, knowing that, and and slow to warm up children are sometimes not seen as as smart as others because Mm. they don't necessarily raise their hand. Right. So remember that this is a child who's, um, you know, equally intelligent but not as able to um, show what they know right away. Um, another trait is persistence. So um, some people are very persistent, and they can really stick with things and manage to, um, you know, do things in a way that um, gets them to finish it and complete a task. And other people get frustrated more easily and um, don't persist in the same way and um, really need adults like a child might say, "I need your help. I can't do this myself." But in fact, um, they just need a little assistance with that. And once they do it, um, then, you know, when they get a little help, they can proceed and continue. Um, there's this negative persistence that kids also have 
that um, they, you know, really insist on having things the way they want to have it. And that's often very frustrating for teachers and for parents. Um, and then some kids are regular or uh, irregular. Some kids are very regular. They like things the same way. And knowing that your yeah. child has high regularity, high rhythmicity, is really helpful when you're planning for the day, helping them get ready for school. They may even be the kids who you know, want their shoes lined up in a certain way, and they like to go to bed at the same time. They like to eat at the same time. And then there are other kids who are very flexible and irregular. And then the last one, and then we can talk more about this, is distractibility. Mm-hmm. I, I think of kids who are highly distractible as often very perceptive. They are noticing everything around them. And I think the distractibility, once a child goes into school, gets gets them in trouble. Yes. Um, and, and teachers start labeling a child um, highly distractible, when in fact a lot of that is their curiosity yes. and their their desire to notice everything around them. Um, and the the child who's not easily distracted or the adult who's not easily distracted can often really focus on a task at hand. But they also have the challenge of not always noticing what's going on around them as well because they're so focused. Um, you know, again, these traits, these nine traits, are um, just a picture of some of the ways in which children move in the world. And I, I, I think... The key for all of us is to step back and say, okay, my child is highly distractible, so when it's homework time, I'm going to make sure no one turns the TV on. I'm going to make sure that I'm sitting nearby doing my checkbook or cooking or chopping the vegetables so that I can help her focus as she needs to. Um, understanding these traits help you set up an environment that really leads to more success for a child. So I'll stop for a minute. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my gosh, yes. So, no, it's wonderful. Thank you. That's the nine. Regularity yeah. was um, number eight, and distractibility yeah, was number, number nine, nine, correct? That's right. And, yeah. again, like okay. I said, in my book, I also have on my website under um, services, I have a temperament um uh, a quick and dirty a temp- a temperament assessment where you can okay. just take a look at it. So under nurserona.com, uh, the page that says services, right at the bottom it says general impressions of your temperament, general impressions of your child's temperament, and um, parents can um, take a look at that. And what's so interesting is when I meet with a, a family, whether I do Skype or in person, I have them do this quick and dirty assessment, one page, on mm-hmm. each person in the household. And then I, mm-hmm. like, color code it. And then I, I say, let's take a look at this. And what often we see, most of the time, not always, is mm-hmm. that the child who is having trouble in the family or at school is mm-hmm. a child whose temperament is usually different than the other folks in the household. Yes. Sometimes it's so similar to one of the parents as well, and that parent is really getting triggered. So mm-hmm. it could be either way, but, but looking at it and looking at, okay, now I get it. I am so regular and orderly and sensitive and um, and sort of slow adapting, and my child is so intense and irregular and active. 
that yeah. I have to take that into consideration as I try and figure out how to navigate day to day. Both for yourself and for the child, right? Yes, and then we use these terms sometimes in the classroom when a parent is struggling a little with a teacher. I have a, a client recently whose teacher just doesn't seem to understand this child and why she's not motivated. And, you know, she, the parent is going to the school with a temperament view and saying, mm-hmm. you know, if if you could tap in to her sensitivity and if you could tap into her intensity and see how she could come up with ideas and how she could be a leader, you might get a lot more cooperation and, and um, in a sense, compliance, but it's not really compliance, it's engagement. Engagement, yeah, I was going to say. You know, because mm-hmm. a lot of kids who are, um, you know, struggling in school don't feel like they're their style is being recognized, or their their right. learning style as well. Yes. Okay. Well, what's coming up for me here? Thank you very much for reviewing these. I've made little notes along the way um, because it's just um, giving me a whole other way of of um, understanding myself. Um, and my kids, but, you know, also, you know, with the families that I work with as well. I want to ask you, and I know you talked about the the wide range of normal and then the impairment, mm-hmm. and maybe this isn't fair to ask you, but do you feel like, like we're, um, are we misunderstanding a bunch of kids out there today and and putting, you know, diagnoses on them? Yeah, when, I mean, if we look through this this lens, it would be different. I don't know. Yes, I, I I think it's a great question, and it's absolutely fair to ask anyone. Um, you know, when I was again trained, and then I became very interested in ADHD, and I started being part of their screening group um, when I worked at Kaiser and um, helped with the diagnosis. Um, what I saw was that there were many factors going on for a lot of these kids who were being diagnosed. I think the temperament piece is key because what I learned is that when a child has, say, slow adaptability, high activity, um, some sensitivity, and some mm-hmm. of the other traits easily frustrated, um, sometimes they would be diagnosed years later with ADHD and sometimes it made perfect sense to me because of the level of impairment that I saw. And other times it made no sense to me that the environment was not set up for this child who has this type of temperament. And I mean the school environment that sometimes is so rigid and non-exciting. And even the classrooms you know, are set up to, um, I think, cause a child to feel uncomfortable and fidgety and um, yes. with with little recess and and not enough time for, you know, physical activity and uh, exciting thinking activity. You know, it, it, it's too much by yes. rote. So, so yes, we, we are over-diagnosing children who are not in the right home or school environment for sure. Um, you know, I think that we're definitely over-diagnosing children with labels. There's some under-diagnosing that goes on as well because yeah, okay. there's a lot of stigma against having um, anything that is 
called a disorder or difference. But I right. think that um, I think the child also who is highly sensitive and who's active can be labeled as ADHD when their sensitivity causes them to spin a little out of control. And they they start to get behavior quote unquote problems because I I remember doing an observation with a child in a preschool and the preschool teacher was ready to suggest he leave the preschool um, if he doesn't behave better and what mm-hmm. I realized was that he was pushing the other kids away when they got in his space right. and he wasn't comfortable playing with the boys who were doing basketball. He wanted to do sand play, and I could tell that he really had challenges with his gross motor skills, and what he wanted was the sensory sand and um, playing very differently, and so then he'd get teased. You know, there were so many dynamics going on that were missed because the teachers had too many kids to manage and handle, and so yes, children are misdiagnosed, they're misunderstood, Often, and when a label then is put on a child, you know there's there there can be a lot of negative consequences that come, and then there's the whole trauma piece. And I'm sure you've talked a little bit about this, but I worked um, in a community, and I've seen other communities where there's a lot of community violence, and um, and there were children who were being labeled ADHD, who were children who were suffering from trauma and continual trauma. And those kids can't concentrate in a classroom. Those kids are fidgety. Those kids might be acting out. And so yes. my my answer to you is yes. And for all of us, it's it's very humbling to step back and try to be a detective and really consider what's going on, to talk to a child, to look at a child, to observe a child and see if we could figure out and start from something that isn't diagnosable, you right. know, start from this wide range of normal, because if you're putting pressure on a slow-to-warm-up child who suddenly, you know, is not comfortable in the classroom, you know, what are we going to see when they're a teenager, for instance? Are they going to drop out um, because of their discomfort? Does the child have a learning difference or a disability and so what's really going on with their behavior is that they actually have a learning disability, but we're thinking they just have this quote-unquote bad behavior. Right. So yeah. I think it can go either way. As you said, there's you know some under-recognition under of, of yes. significant um, a challenge. Neurobiological challenges. I mean, especially with right. girls who have the inattentive type of ADHD, often those girls who are and it's girls more often than boys who are missed I think missed. when it's right. when it's um when it's not an acting out issue but their inattention often is not noticed and then they start to fall behind more and more and then they reach fourth or fifth grade and things get really hard Mhm okay Yeah Well I started out by saying that you have this wealth of knowledge and boy do you 
Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I've learned from all the parents I've worked with, really. I yeah, mean, no. I've been fortunate to study with some really wonderful mentors and doing a, I did a radio show for 10 years and um I got to, you know, learn from people every week. But a lot of what I've learned is really from the parents I've worked with mm-hmm. who who have come to me you know, being able honestly to talk about their challenges and how they're yelling too much or they're unhappy with, um, you know, how they feel towards their child. And once they learn about temperament, often something shifts. And so yes. there's not as much blame of themselves or of their children. Mm-hmm. And, and if we could do anything to reduce um, shaming or blaming parents and children, then um, children are going to thrive, you know, in school and at home for sure. Thank you. So um, if this has piqued your curiosity as it has mine, please visit um, Rona's website. Just tell it uh, to us again. Yes, it's Nurse Rona, N-U-R-S-E-R-O-N-A, nurserona.com. And it's actually, my website is up and it's functioning fine, but my videos had some problems. They were taken down, so they'll be up again. But there's some basic information there about temperament. Um, I have a lot of articles, and I also have all my radio shows there. So you can put in in the search engine, you can put in a word and see if a radio show shows up. Um, I'm doing a radio show these days um, as well, and you can find them all at my website, um, if if you're not in the Bay Area where it's live. And, uh, yeah, and Is That Me Yelling is my book, and I love talking to parents about temperament, so I'm very grateful that you asked me to do this, Mary. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And all of the, the links, again, are in the email. I've linked um, to to Rona's book, Is That Me Yelling, and also to her website. So you, And also there's a... Um, uh, you, uh, people can sign up on your website, right, for um, more information? That, yes, um, uh, it will be up again next week. <laughs> yes, yes, it's okay. But, so, and when this is aired, so, it should be up, yes, for sure. Perfect. Okay. Um, all right. I hope that has given you uh, lots to think about, and perhaps you are starting to see some of these these traits in yourself and in your kids and then how they relate together. So, Nurse Rona, thanks again so much. You're very welcome, Mary, and I'm so glad you're doing this. I feel like parents need, I've, I felt like I needed with my four kids to as much information as I could get to be the expert on your child because you are, you all the parents who are listening, you are the expert on your child. Absolutely, and, and thanks for uh, reminding us that. <laughs> okay, for the, take care. Yeah, no, for the listeners, uh, check your email tomorrow to see who uh, is up next in the series, and I'll talk to you again soon.